This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our final special presentation actually came from, I think, our planning and advisory committee as well as the evaluations from last year. And so this is a very special, uh, unique presentation um, from Rick Gadotti, who is right here. Um, a fashion photographer who has done something pretty incredible called the Frame Project. And so we're going to let Rick do his thing. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Hey, oh, I'm so thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so actually, changing it that way, great. So, so I'll tell you a little bit. I'll give you a little history on positive exposure. I'm a, I am a fashion photographer I'm based in New York City, but I also lived in Milan and Paris for several years and got to work with some pretty amazing models and clients. And uh, this, of course, is Claudia for an L shoot. Uh, this is Marie Claire. I did a lot of work for the House of Yves Saint Laurent in Paris, so I lived in Paris for quite a bit. I did a lot of portraiture as well. That's a portrait of Mr. Saint Laurent, and that's one of the images from our global campaign. Uh, French Elle magazine. This is New York Style magazine. Marie Claire. English Marie Claire. French L. And of course, here's our beautiful Cindy with, from a Revlon shoot. So I got to work with lots of great models and lots of great clients, and I traveled around the world. I was living in Milan, and it was amazing. But it was also really quite frustrating, because I was always, always, always told who was beautiful. You know, I, and I was told who the model of the moment was, and we all had to photograph that face, and then it would change the next season, and we'd photograph that face the next season. But I was always told who's beautiful. And as an artist, I never, ever, ever saw, and I continue never to see, beauty only on covers of magazines. It exists there, but it doesn't only exist there. I see beauty everywhere. I was leaving my studio one afternoon in New York City, running down Park Avenue after doing a huge casting for Elle magazine. I pretty much saw every model in town. It was amazing. But I was just running down Park Avenue, and there, waiting for the bus at Park and 20th, was this stunning girl. She had long, white, white, white hair. She had pale skin. She had this genetic condition called albinism. I knew the genetic, I knew the term was albino. That's what I knew. And she was stunning, but I, I never met a model like, look, that looked like this girl. She had never been included in that beauty standard. And I wanted to grab her and say, I have to take your photograph. You're amazing. But the bus came and she got on the bus and took off. And, you know, and I always say this, and I always say this in my presentation, I'm actually really quite pleased that the bus came because she was 12 years old and I would be in prison. So I'm glad that that didn't happen. So she was stunning, but I just ran down to the local Barnes & Noble to find more photographs of this gorgeous girl or friends of hers with the genetic condition albinism. I, I went to the School of Visual Arts in New York City, so I only went to an art school. I never saw a medical textbook photograph or a medical textbook prior to that moment. And there was my first medical textbook. I pulled it off the shelf, so excited to open it up to albinism, to find images of this gorgeous girl or her friends. But instead of finding those images, I found these images. I found images of the bright red albino eye. This kid did not have bright red eyes. She had beautiful blue eyes. And I saw thousands of photographs of people in cancer clinics with great big open festering wounds and cancers. I'm thinking, this is horrible. But then even more disturbing were the countless images that I saw of kids up against walls in doctor's offices, usually naked, with those black bars across their eyes, standing up against the wall. See, and I'm thinking, this is not what I'm looking for. Where are those photographs of that gorgeous? 
religious kid. So I very quickly closed those books. I figured an encyclopedia, that's where I'm going to find them. But instead, I grabbed an encyclopedia. But instead of finding photographs of this gorgeous kid, I found the freak albino family in the circus. And then I started doing more research, and I found all these incredible negative portrayals in Hollywood feature films from Powder, who had albinism because his mother was struck by lightning when she was pregnant with him, to the, the, you know, the Princess Bride, the pit of despair, to The Matrix Reloaded, these evil ghost-like characters that would come in, they'd wreak havoc, and then they'd disappear to even most recently the Da Vinci Code, where the Da Vinci, it was the evil Silas driving around parasite shooting at people. One of the first things I discovered in my research about albinism that people with this condition have a visual impairment. Most people with albinism are considered legally blind, so certainly wouldn't be driving around parasite shooting at anybody and expect to hit any of their targets. So this is terrible information that's out there. I'm thinking this is getting worse and worse and worse. But I did see in one of, in one of my research uh, moments, I, I saw that there was a support group called NOAA. NOAA is the National Organization for Albinism and Hypopigmentation. It's a support group for people living with this condition and their families. I got so excited, I called them instantly. I was like, hey, I'm a fashion photographer. Let's show the world the beauty of albinism. This is going to be amazing. They said, get lost. You know, I'm pretty persistent. I'm kind of a New Yorker. I don't give up so easily. I kept going after them and asking them and trying to find out why they, they, they told me to get lost. And they, they eventually made it very clear to me about their fear of exploitation. That every time there was a magazine article about somebody with albinism, it was always the story about a victim. It was always sensational. It was always exploitative. It was always negative. I'm like, okay, I get it. I see this. I feel this. I understand this completely. But that's, I've been, I can't find one positive portrayal of albinism. It's, it's, it's just wild. So can, why don't we do something strange here? Let's form a non-traditional partnership. Fashion photographer, genetic support group, and together we'll collaborate and create a photographic essay that celebrates the beauty of albinism. And they agreed. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. So positive exposure is born that day. In walks the first girl I'm going to photograph. Her name is Christine. She's stunning. She's 5'9", long white hair. She's amazing. But she walks into my studio with her shoulders hunched, head down, no eye contact, one word answers. This kid had zero self-esteem as a direct result from the bullying, the teasing, the abuse she experienced in the school environment because of her difference. And it was, it was heartbreaking to see this beautiful kid sitting there like this. I didn't know what to do. How am I going to photograph this kid? She's so vulnerable. But just the day, just the day before, on the same set in my studio, I did a, a Revlon shoot with Cindy Crawford, and I thought, you know, out of respect for this gorgeous kid, I want to photograph her like I would any supermodel. So the fan went on, the music went on, and I, I grabbed a mirror and I held it up there and I said, Christine, look at yourself. You're magnificent. And this kid looked in the mirror and saw what I saw. And she went from this to this. And she exploded with a smile that literally, literally lit up New York City. That's our beautiful Christine. Christine, thank you, thank you. She loves those. She loves applause. So Christine, now she's going to walk into school the next day, not like this, like she normally does, but like this. She desperately needed to change the way she saw herself. Her community desperately needed to change the way that they saw her difference. So she created that moment, that very first photo shoot at Positive Exposure Studio, the philosophy that drives everything that we do. And that philosophy is change how you see, see how you change. 
Those first images were in Life magazine. It was in an article called Redefining Beauty. Everybody saw it. Lots of awards for it. It was great. It kind of put albinism on the map. The albinism foundation was thrilled. It went to all the different foundations worldwide. I, as I was doing my fashion work, I'd show up in London and we'd do a, a family photo shoot at a conference there or in the UK or, or in, in Australia or in New Zealand. We started an organization for support group all over the world. It, could, it raised a lot, a lot of noise. It was fantastic. When I came back to New York City, and I, well, in the middle of all this, I received an award, one of the best awards that I ever received in my life. It was an award from this organization called the Genetic Alliance. The Genetic Alliance is a coalition of all the genetic support groups worldwide. And as I was, they were presenting the award, they explained to me that you know, they see the beauty in all these gorgeous photographs of kids with albinism, but there absolutely is a universal message here. It's not about albinism. It's about all differences. And they asked me, would I be interested in going to one of the other genetic support groups that they represent and take photographs celebrating the beauty of those gorgeous kids, celebrating the beauty of the, their, their differences for their families? I was like, what an amazing idea. I, of course, I would love to do that. But you know, I wanted to do my due diligence I went back to those scary medical textbooks to find out what the heck a chromosome 18 anomaly was because that was the very next conference that they were representing. It was for the Chromosome 18 Registry and Research Society. So I figured, okay, I'm going to go and figure it out. And so I opened those medical textbooks to chromosome 18 anomalies, and that's what I saw. It was terrifying. I saw images of kids with cleft palates. I saw images of stillborns. I saw images of doctors turning kids' heads like this. I saw image, it was, there were just images of kids with trachs and feeding tubes. And I it was trisomy 13, trisomy 18, tetrasomy 18, 18P and Q minus. And I'm thinking, this is horrible. I don't want to do this. Albinism was so easy compared to this. This is frightening. But I went, I was committed to this, and it was in San Antonio, Texas. And I committed, so I went to this conference, and I was terrified. But I walked into this conference and went down to the auditorium where there were kids, on, kids and young adults being entertained by a clown on stage making balloon animals. And I walked into that auditorium with these horrible images burned in my head, terrified. But I walked in, and I was instantly surrounded by kids screaming with laughter. There were kids, there were people in that audience. There were kids with cleft palates and trachs and feeding tubes and mobility issues. But there were people, there were kids. Where were those giggles in those photographs? These are my, some of the great friends that I met right away. It's Pauline and Rebecca. My very good friend, Ellington. Remy. Deke. And they weren't just kids. There were some kids, they were young adults, and they were adults. This is my great friend, Sean. I've been photographing Sean from the day that I met him to just a few, a few weeks ago at my studio in New York City. My great friend, Rebecca. So it was really so incredible. It's like these gorgeous kids. They were, they were people. Where were those giggles in those medical textbook photographs? I came back to New York City just inspired and really energized and revved up to, to do more of this work. And I was approached by Francis Collins, who was then the director of the National Human Genome Research Institute. And he wanted to create, we were going to create a photographic exhibition at the Museum of Natural History commemorating the mapping of the people's genome. It was going to be an exhibition that would 
launch at the Smithsonian and would travel worldwide. And he wanted to see the, the heterogeneity within that, that homogenous diagnosis of albinism. And I thought, great idea, but you're not going to believe this. I just came back from the Chromosome 18 Registry Conference, and I had this incredible experience. It really, really is a universal message here. It's about all differences. Let's invite many genetic support groups to participate in this human celebration, the celebration of difference. And he, and he agreed. So together with the Genetic Alliance and Sharon Terry, who's the current president, we then did a great outreach program and a campaign to invite many groups to participate. The first group that stepped up was the National Marfan Foundation. Marfan syndrome, as you know, is a connective tissue disorder. You grow very, very tall. You're at risk of an aortic dissection, scoliosis, really long arms and legs and limbs. And I thought, okay, I went and did my research and I saw that photograph and I understood the importance of that photograph in healthcare and, and medical education. How important it was to show how Marfan syndrome presents itself. I get it. But now let me take over because I'm an artist. Let me show the same information in that photograph, but show the most important key ingredient that needs to be not just shown in medical education, but in, embedded in medical education, and that's humanity. Let's show Billy in a swimming pool. Let's show those long, gorgeous arms but, and really get a sense of Marfan syndrome, but also get a sense that it's Billy first and foremost. Some of my other great friends that I started working with right away is my great friend Caleb. Caleb is a little person. He has achondroplasia dwarfism, a very common form of dwarfism. Caleb wants to be the president of the United States or an actor. So, but I told him all about Ronald Reagan, and now he knows that he's going, and he will do both, and he's going to, because now he knows that Ronald Reagan did it, so he can do it, and that's Caleb. So my great friend, Dr. Nadia, she was a second-year medical student in the Middle East when I met her at, in Education City. Uh, she has acromesomelic dysplasia, a rare form of skeletal dysplasia. She's a little person as well. She's now finished her residency at Dayton Children's Hospital and doing her postdoc at Baylor in genetics. She said all she ever needs to succeed as a doctor is a stool. She is amazing. That's our Dr. Nadia. My great friend Lily with 4P minus wolf hirschhorn syndrome. Ronan living with prater willi syndrome. Looks like Frank Sinatra, I think. A beautiful Jada living with 22Q11.2 deletion. Caitlin living with cerebral palsy. She's a senior and deciding on her final school selections right now, which is really exciting. Simone, I do a lot of work with the National Down Syndrome Foundations worldwide. This is the incredible Simone who represents the National Down Syndrome Foundation of Italy. And my great friends from the Clemson Life Pro Program at Clemson University. Clemson Life Program is a program that works with kids with intellectual disabilities, brings them on campus, puts them in integrated classrooms where they actually have great classes, but they learn all kinds of great things, and they have a full-on college experience and also learn, really learn life skills as well. And so it's really exciting to be part of that. We went back and we're re-photographing these kids at Clemson Life Program. And we're going to launch an exhibition there in the next couple of weeks, which is really thrilling. I go to medical schools. I go to medical schools worldwide. I speak to usually first or second year med students, not because I really want to deliver all this medical information to medical students, but really because I can pronounce arthrogryposis multiplex congenita. And I know what it means. I know exactly what it means, not because I ever studied it from a textbook. I know what it means because I met PJ at an arthrogryposis conference. I met PJ and a lot of his friends with AMC. PJ's this incredible, incredible kid, and he, he can't use his arm 
arms, because or his hands, because of the type of arthrogryposis that he has. And so his family call his eating technique his Viking dive. Because he'll go into his plate of mashed potatoes, and he comes up. And then he goes into his plate of peas, and he comes up. And then he chases his sisters around the table with a face full of mashed potatoes and peas. You will never, ever, ever forget arthrogryposis multiplex congenita because you will never, ever, ever forget PJ. I go to so many family conferences in the summer months. Last summer, I went to 15 family conferences. They're always from the middle, middle of June to the, to the end of uh, July, beginning August. And I go, and I go, and I take a billion photographs, and we gift all those photographs back to the foundations used on their website sites and their public awareness materials and their brochures, whatever they can do to replace those horrifying photographs. But I also now bring healthcare providers in training with me. I bring med students, most importantly, and genetic counseling students and nursing students and OTs and PTs. And I bring them in and I shove them in daycare and I lock the door and I check back in on them at the end of the day and I, they're always like a little shell shock. They always have like a little poop on their shoulder and, and then they have like gum in their hair. But they're going to be help better healthcare providers because they're, going to, because they're meeting the these kids not in the clinical environment. They're meeting these kids not in crisis. They're meeting these gorgeous kids being kids and being the p- individuals and being people. So it really is incredible making sure that we really instill and embed in early medical education that it's never what you're treating. It's always, always who you're treating. So we've created this program here, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about next, called FRAME. FRAME is the Faces Redefining the Art of Medical Education. It's, a meta, it's a, an online-based library featuring several genetic conditions, many genetic conditions, uh, physical conditions, intellectual conditions, and developmental differences as well, kind of creating opportunities for, to kind of create and show and illustrate all the basic hallmarks of a certain condition, but as presented by somebody living with the condition themselves or their family members, putting re- front row and center in medical education, humanity. The, uh, the, each, each gallery, they're open, they're free to the public, and you can, you can access all these in medical education. We have a mobile device, which I'll give you that number in a second. But it really is a creating this library that not only has these very brief films, they're about six to seven minutes long, because keeping in mind that med students have very short attention spans, so, but really is about offering an opportunity to really get to meet these kids firsthand or individuals living with this condition firsthand. This is one of our, this is going to be a little compilation that I'll talk a bit about about in a sec. Hey, my name is Noah, and I'd like to introduce you to some of my friends. We all have a genetic condition called albinism. You may have seen us in movies or heard that we're all evil or have magic powers or have red eyes. We're like any other group of people. We're all different. We're all unique. And you will see here the diversity among us. Albinism affects people across the world from all ethnicities. But it's not only in humans. It affects animals too and all kinds of them as well. There are two main types of albinism, ocular cutaneous and ocular albinism. Ocular cutaneous affects the eyes, the skin, and the hair, and ocular affects just the eyes. It's my birthday. My name is Alex. And I'm Ezra. And this is Cassie and Penelope. Hello. Hello. And Cassie was born with a genetic syndrome called Marfan syndrome. 
We wanted to show you a feature Cassie was born with. As you can see, Cassie's chest sinks inward toward the middle. This is called pectus excavatum. But Penelope, what is it that you call, you and Cassie call it? Target. Target. Why do we call it a target, Cass? Because Penelope likes to shoot water at Yeah, she used to laugh all the time when I put water in it. Why would you put water in there? Because that's what made her laugh. Can you take a picture of it? I am. I'm doing it right now. I'm making a movie of it. Chromosomes are the instructions that tell our bodies how to grow and develop. Most people have two copies of each chromosome for a total of 46 chromosomes. Some people have 47 chromosomes. Most people who have Down syndrome have three copies of chromosome 21, also known as trisomy 21. This is caused by a sporadic event known as non-disjunction, which usually occurs prior to conception. I'm Max. Hi, I'm Mitch. I'm 15 years old. It's been a great world for me. It's basically like an extra chromosome, and that chromosome blends in the awesomeness and blends in all of the loyalty and, you know, I, I could go on and on about, about it, but... Me and Miles have a rare uh, skin called confetti. It makes us very itchy and our, and our skin is very scaly. So be very careful when you scrub us. <laughs> <laughs> It's a web-based library. We're building that library, and, um, it's, and each, each frame piece uh, is accessible on phones or on the computer, but it will have actually the frame film itself translated. There will be English uh, captions and also it's Spanish at the moment, and we're adding other languages as we go along. Uh, and, then, and then it also has a photographic gallery showing the diversity within that in that. Uh, a diagnosis or syndrome community. And then there's also all the text uh, that will show within the actual diagnosis and actual within the frame piece that can be studied, downloaded, and printed, et cetera, for notes and note keeping. I'm really excited about um, right now to present it's the world premiere of our latest and greatest frame piece on Fragile X Syndrome. Uh, of course, Fragile X Syndrome being the, the, the most commonly thought of uh, I, uh, genetic condition, genetic gen genetic marker for autism. Uh, and I'd like to just present this now. This is actually done with a, a great a grant through the Special Hope Foundation and helped us build our library, and we're growing and growing with this. So I'd like to introduce us. I've never seen this on the screen, so I'm really excited to share this with you, and I would like to ask for comments afterwards if that's okay. And you can be really critical, and you can be brutal if you like. It's okay. So here we are. This is uh, oh, sorry, this is, we're going to show this first. If you text the word FRAME to 56512, you can actually access um, these pieces. Um, and they, we have nine of them on, online at the moment and five ready to go. And I think, so we're ready to go with the next film? Is that okay? There we go. Fragile X in FRAME. Thank you. Brexton, he's 22 months old, and this is our Coco, and he is five. 
My son Cole was born with a genetic condition called Fragile X Syndrome. My family and other families hope to teach you more about this condition. Fragile X Syndrome is a genetic condition that causes intellectual disability, behavioral and learning challenges, and various physical characteristics. Though Fragile X occurs in both genders, males are more frequently affected than females, and generally with greater severity. Life expectancy is not affected in people with Fragile X Syndrome because there are usually no life-threatening health concerns associated with the condition. Fragile X Syndrome is caused by mutations in the FMR1 gene. This condition has an unusual non-Mendelian inheritance pattern. Almost all cases are caused by an expansion of the FMR1 gene on the X chromosome. Usually, the FMR1 gene includes a repetitive series of CGG triplets which is repeated in most people from five to 45 times. Individuals with Fragile X Syndrome have more than 200 repeats, silencing the activity of this gene. Fragile X Syndrome is diagnosed in about one in 4,000 males and one in 8,000 females. Females typically have milder symptoms than males, although some females may have additional behavioral features such as shyness. Cole was diagnosed with Fragile X when he was 22 months old. He was not walking nor talking. He started with the ear infections the month after he turned one. And for the next few months, he was on antibiotics probably four out of the five months. Um, and we noticed that he wasn't really responding. Um, we didn't understand why. We had visited a neurologist just because the primary care physician was a little bit confused where to put him and she said well he definitely doesn't have autism if that's why you're here but go through with the with the tube surgery and see um, what happens there but in the meantime why don't we do these genetic testing while you already have him under anesthesia and so within 24 hours of him having the ear surgery the tube surgery he was walking without support so we assumed that it was all to do with all that fluid. Maybe two weeks after the surgery, yeah. the neurologist called and was completely baffled, said that she was completely shocked, was not expecting that result at all, but that he had the full mutation of Fragile X. Cole's number was 300. You know, the diagnosis didn't change who he was, and he was still a super fun, happy kid. Um, and then, so, I mean, we kind of accepted that and been working towards getting the most help we can at the early age where it can help the most. Hi, I'm Brian. <laughs> I'm Haley. Justin's 15. Uh, we got diagnosed with Fragile X on or around when he was five years old after his first grandma seizure. About 20% of all kids with Fragile X have seizures. H Haley's been an amazing sister. She has always supported Justin fully. And she even has uh, a saying, which is, uh, Justin is her social barometer. And if there was anybody who wanted to be her friend, come into the house, or be a part of her life, if, if they did not get along with Justin or accept Justin for who he was, that was the end of that relationship. And she would move on to whomever would be uh, open and welcoming. Many males with Fragile X Syndrome are likely to have the following features. Long, narrow face, large ears, prominent jaw, and forehead. Approximately half of females with Fragile X also have these features. Flexible fingers, flat feet, and enlarged testicles can also be seen after puberty. These features may become more apparent with age. Prepubertal males tend to have normal growth but large occipital frontal head circumference. I'm Kara. I'm Steve. 
I'm Jason. Andrew. Andrew was uh, diagnosed first with um, the autism spectrum disorder, just the generic PDD NOS. Mm. And the doctor we were seeing said, I think you need some other testing. He doesn't quite fit all the characteristics because he's so social. Lo and behold, we got a call that they were shocked that he had it. And uh, so that began our journey with Fragile X. Jason was born and they said, oh, he's probably gonna be a carrier. It turned out that he was full Fragile X. Yes. Whereas Andrew is a... Mosaic. Mosaic. So two completely different mm -hmm. presentations and two completely different answers. A highly characteristic behavioral feature of Fragile X in males and females is gaze aversion, a distinctive type of poor eye contact where the person actively diverts his or her eyes. Hand flapping and hand biting are nearly universal in young boys and most girls with Fragile X. While the physical features of Fragile X syndrome can be very subtle in prepubertal children, the triad of gaze aversion, hand flapping, and hand biting in young children with global developmental delay is highly suggestive of Fragile X syndrome. Expressive language has been delayed um, significantly. It seems as if that has been his biggest hit, um, but it's coming. And so he's at the point now where he'll ask questions. So that's coming. The other thing is um, the attention and the hyperactivity. And he definitely has um, both of those things, especially in a learning environment where the classroom is structured so that you have eight desks all sitting in one direction listening to a lecture, and that's not probably going to fit him. <laughs> so one of the advantages is he loves electronics. So any kind of therapeutic stuff that we can get on the iPads and on his iPod work out well for him because he likes to do the electronic piece. Uh, he's more of a follower. He likes to watch him do the stuff. Andrew's mainstreamed for um, social studies and science and art and music and gym. Part of the day he goes to his support classes for reading math and English. One of the most interesting things about Justin is in order for him to cognitively figure things out, he does it in forms of questions. And I know this is very typical with Fragile X. And so he has a set of questions that he will go through over and over and over again. But it's a way for him to get information. Right, Justin? Awesome, right? Can I get a high five? When there is an interest in a subject, there's a zero in on a focus for... Um, what they can learn and what they really can do. So it's a matter of just finding what interests them and then using it to your advantage to help them improve their, those skills. With Fragile X Syndrome, there is also a higher prevalence of mitral valve prolapse than in the general population. Other medical conditions that can be seen as part of Fragile X Syndrome include recurrent otitis media and hypotonia in infancy, Approximately 15% of males and 5% of females with Fragile X have seizures. I typically look at three different levers when you think about anyone associated with Fragile X. You have an anxiety lever, you have a behavioral lever, and then you have a um, uh, mental impairment lever. And so because it's a syndrome, you know, everyone affected by Fragile X has a different portion of each of those levers. And so in Justin's case, he has debilitating anxiety, which really helps, you know, hurts him with the transitions and actually just 
being ready to do things. On the mental impairment side, he's actually higher on the cognitive ability, his puzzle ability, his ability to, to think. It's all in there. We say that all the time, just waiting for it to all to come out. But his behaviors associated with his anxiety are typically very bad, especially when he was younger. Behaviors in males with Fragile X syndrome often include tactile defensiveness, poor eye contact, repetitive speech, problems in impulse control, and distractibility. A majority of boys and many girls with Fragile X syndrome exhibit features of autism spectrum disorder. It takes time to figure it out, figure out what works for your kid, because every kid truly is different. Um, we have two, and they respond differently <laughs> to different things, just like any other two kids we would have had would respond differently. He's brightened many of people's life, I think, yeah. with his smiles and his happiness. And I don't know if that's necessarily a fragile X thing or that's a cool thing, but or we I like, like it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was kind of exciting. I love seeing that. So I, there we go. So I am going to ask for does anybody have any comments or criticism or help with this? Because I really want this to be a really useful and great tool, but we want to, it's, I won't be insulted, I promise, if they're too, yes? I just want to say that generally for genetic stuff, I do what you do, I go to Smith's. Yeah, of course. Like that, to, to, and, and if I had something like this available, I would so much rather look at that. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for that. Me too, me too, me too. Thank you. And we're building that library, Yes. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. That's good. And that's kind of why we're doing this is really to bring in to make sure that we understand and we can present the healthcare providers in training, embed early in their in their education that the families are also part of that treatment. The families are also, but they, nobody's going to know more about that kid than his mother or father. They're not going to know, and more. They're definitely going to know more than that doctor. So, so the idea is, and just listening over the last twenty years with positive exposure, really making these relationships and bringing all and hearing all these voices and and. Training translating that to create a new model that adds humanity and medical education is so key. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I graduated school in 1977. Mm-hmm. Sure. It took me years to get Awesome. Great. That's amazing. Yes. Sure. Color, if they and their families would be willing to get a final uh, product. 
Okay, that's a, and that's perfect, and that's a great criticism. And what we're doing is we're using this. Now, I've been to several Fragile X conferences, and the next one we're going to go and we'll premiere it to the families because it turns out that not only does this work for healthcare providers in training, but it's also great for families to introduce the condition in the school environment for the kids. But what we'll do is we'll be adding on to this. So this all is these are all housed. On, uh, on a website, uh, on, a, on a positiveexposure.org site. It's under frame, and then you can and you pull up all that. And we're going to be adding various films and various friends. And new, So we have the one day of shoot just for financial reasons. We just shoot the one shoot, and people, we want everybody to come, and, and they come. But then we're going to keep building on this. And all the actual websites that have all the up-to-date pertinent information, whether it be the support group, advocacy for families, or really up-to-date information, medical information, will all be listed on this site as well. So it will become a Eventually, a one one a kind of a, a you know a, a pure one hundred percent resource for all these genetic conditions. It'll be pretty exciting. Thank you. Yes. Sure. Sure. Great. Sure. Wonderful. Thank you. Yes. Sure, of course. Great. Oh, thank you. Well, we're, when we create these, we create these with the whole team of geneticists, but also med students, genetic counseling students, family members, the advocacy support groups. So what we're also trying to do, and one of the, the criteria, the main criteria, is to forge new relationships, new friendships with people that generally don't speak to one another, although they're all in the same service industry, but they don't see or, or hear one another. And now we're bringing them all in here. So now these are friendships that are going to be formed and forged for life. So it's really exciting. So I'd like to show an additional one, uh, one more. This one will be on Down syndrome. Uh, so I'm going to create that because I thought it was appropriate for this. So we can go to the next one. Thanks. Okay. Or maybe I can change it myself. Maybe. I think so. Can we get that? Oh, yeah. Hi, my name is David, and I am here with some of my friends. We are here today to talk to you about Down Syndrome. So when Henry was born, he got the regular, you know, kind of once over. And he had what they initially said to us very cautiously was that he had features suggestive of Down syndrome. And I was kind of stunned by these tiny features that seemed to be so telling to the doctors. So the, the low muscle tone we could definitely see. But then um, his little finger is a little bit crooked, they said. Um, his ears were small. He had a shallow bridge of the nose, um, tiny little, his eyes were maybe more 
widely set than someone else's eyes. So it, it was remarkable to me that all of these tiny um, signals could add up to something. Um, so we then did the blood test, and um, so the, the diagnosis was confirmed about two weeks later. Chromosomes are the instructions that tell our bodies how to grow and develop. Most people have two copies of each chromosome for a total of 46 chromosomes. Some people have 47 chromosomes. Most people who have Down syndrome have three copies of chromosome 21, also known as trisomy 21. This is caused by a sporadic event known as non-disjunction, which usually occurs prior to conception. Each child is unique and special <laughs> and has specific needs that are different. And get to know the person that you're working with. Um, the diagnosis is, can be the same, but each individual is an individual. Children with Down syndrome are expected to reach developmental milestones as other children, however, it may take a little bit longer than other children. People with Down syndrome have characteristic facial features. For example, you may see folds of the skin on the inner corner of their eyes called epicanthal folds. You may notice that the nose looks a little flatter at the top between the eyes. This is called a depressed nasal bridge. Individuals may have eyes that slant slightly upward, which is called upslanting palpebral fissures. Another physical feature commonly seen in Down syndrome is called a single palmar crease. This used to be called a simian crease, but has been changed to better describe this feature. This is when someone has one crease that goes across the hand. About half of people with Down syndrome have this crease on at least one hand. It develops during the fetal period. These features don't cause problems in children with Down syndrome. People without the syndrome can also have some of these features as well. I'm Max. Hi, I'm Mitch. I'm 15 years old. It's been a great world for me. It's basically like an extra chromosome, and that chromosome blends in the awesomeness and blends in all of the loyalty and, you know... I, I could go on and on about, about it, but this person is right here because he is the light of the future. I love him, and I got to say this, but I said my gun is a part of a crime. I love you. <laughs> I love you, too. Because everyone with Down syndrome is unique, different people with Down syndrome have different abilities. Max shows us what he can do, and we celebrate those achievements, as we would with our other child who does not have Down syndrome. Hi, I'm Erica, and this is my mom, Norma. I love to dance. Um, I choreograph my own dances. Some health problems are more common among people with Down syndrome than the general population. Between 40 and 60% of children born with Down syndrome will have a congenital heart defect. About 5 to 10% of people with Down syndrome are born with an intestinal blockage called duodenal atresia. Others will have gastroesophageal reflux. 
Some other specific digestive conditions can also be seen more commonly than in the general population. AV canal, a specific heart defect, is more common in babies with Down syndrome than without. An AV canal occurs when the septum that separates the left and right sides of the heart has a hole in it. This also causes the valves that separate the upper part and the lower part of the heart to not form properly. Instead of two valves, there is only one large valve. The hearts of people with an AV canal must work harder than a typical heart, which can cause it to become enlarged if it is not repaired. I'm Lisa. I'm Gina. Sometimes people with Down syndrome have a tongue that actually looks a little bit bigger than it typically is, and this is called a protruding tongue. In some cases, the tongue is a little larger than the typical size, and this is known as macroglossia. And in other cases, the mouth may actually be slightly smaller, which gives the appearance of a tongue actually being enlarged. And in other cases, the protrusion may just be due to poor muscle tone, and this is called hypotonia. The fears and what you have in your mind as far as what your child is going to be like and, and what the worst case scenarios that go through your mind. And then the reality, once the person is born, once Angela was born, it couldn't have been more different. My name is Anthony. I'm also known as Aiden's daddy. I'm Jordana. I'm Aiden's mom. Who are you? Nope. <laughs> this is Aiden. <laughs> when you look at Aiden, you will see a very active, healthy seven and a half year old, which he absolutely is. Um, but when you scratch the surface a little bit, I'll just go down the list of the things that Aiden has that are frequently diagnosed with children with Down syndrome. Um, he has hypothyroidism. He wears bilateral SMO orthotics to help him ambulate, and he's been wearing those since he was two years old, um, and they were crucial um, for him to develop independence in walking. He also has glasses for astigmatism. He also um, did have surgery to remove his tonsils and shave his adenoids for um, severe sleep apnea, and then he has recently been diagnosed with ADHD. First thing is to congr uh, congratulate the family. Um, again, the nurses are wonderful congratulating the families. Um, the doctors don't do that right away. They're not sure of how the family feels about it. But I think no matter what the family feels, it's just congratulate a child is born. And that's the first thing that they should do is congratulate you and, uh, and say, you have this beautiful child, and they happen to have Down syndrome. <clears throat> that's how our doctor, our pediatrician, had the approach. He was the first person to congratulate us. Children with Down syndrome may also have hearing infections more than the children without Down syndrome. There are also other problems that could happen with the ears, nose, and throat in people with Down syndrome. She had heart surgery in right? June 2005. She was 22 months old. And then in December 2006, she had her tonsils and adenoids out. A lot of kids with Down syndrome are just slightly more complicated medically. Um, and so... Max had his own complications. He was hypothyroid. Um, he, uh, his, uh, he was very congested, so he had a bunch of adenoids and tubes and things like that. He's got sleep apnea, so he doesn't sleep great, but he, now that he wears the uh, pilot mask, he sleeps much better. Um, so, but he's reasonably robust. He's one of the stronger people I know. Hits the golf ball a mile. He remembers everybody's name. He's the best speller at his school. So, uh, yeah, there's some, uh, it's, a, it's a complicated puzzle, but once you figure it out, it's really, really fun.
much fun to work on these on these frame pieces because it really once again it's about the experience of bringing the families in empowering our ambassadors and and their families and then our communities and really presenting these to healthcare providers in training but of course as i said earlier families are using these to introduce these to in, in, in the in the classroom environment and in the social arenas as well uh we've created some we've have we have 10 right now on our site we've just finished uh 22q1 1.2 deletion in frame in collaboration with nationwide Children's Hospital. We created a cystic fibrosis in frame in collaboration with Harvard, Brigham and Women's, the Lung Center, and Children's Hospital Boston. Uh, we created, uh, there, and there are others that are on our website. Our next step that we're, we're creating is we're looking at look, uh, creating uh, autism in frame. We're creating opportunities to really kind of look beyond the diagnosis to show the diversity within that diagnosis, really targeting healthcare providers and breaking that fear and that stigma that would be there. Also looking at intellectual disabilities as well, creating it'll be much more of a symptomatic, but really kind of creating opportunities to start that dialogue in the health uh, care education community. Um, and then looking at also cerebral palsy we're going to create. And then looking at, uh, and taking it even further, we're looking at fetal alcohol syndrome as well. But we're also, we're approached by, I, I speak to medical schools everywhere, as I told you, and I, I was speaking, I speak every year at the Uniform Services University, which is the uh, medical school that, serve, that t- trains health, uh, medical docs, all of our military docs. And a lot of their, their health care providers and training their docs see an elevated amount of trauma because, of course, where they're, 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 they're practicing uh, on, the war, on, on the war planes. And, um, and so we're, they've approached me to create a frame piece, and we just got the grant to do that on um, uh, limb salvage, amputation, and prosthetics and creating opportunities for those healthcare providers to really then see the diversity and all the things that are available in collaboration with Walter Reed and the Wounded Warriors as well. But taking this same message and going everywhere that I do, everywhere in the world, I, 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 go to, I speak not only to healthcare providers and conferences like this one, but I also speak to students. I, I go to. I'm very, very much involved with the American Society of Human Genetics, and we we travel. And they, it's a huge genetics organization, and wherever there's an annual conference, and wherever that conference happens to be, we then invite the the local high schools to come in. Kids sometimes are the kids that are are science tracked or biology majors, but sometimes they're just kids that are curious about genetics. And we hold a full day uh, symposium on genetics, and I usually end that one with a positive exposure message and celebrating difference. A couple of years ago, I was uh, honored by the, the task of, of, um, of being the judge or one of the judges on their Teen Gene Genetics Video Challenge, which is really exciting. We're, we're talking to teens in, 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 you know, in, the, in the genetics community, and, but talking to, gene, to teens in high school community and, ask, and asking them to create something special that would really kind of be, you know, that would really talk about how does genetics affect your life and let's talk about this and these kids would create these beautiful, these beautiful um, short videos and we would present those and we'd, somebody would win. Well, the winners last year, I'm so lucky to say, are right here with us right here. Here today. So, Cindy, Rarell, could you stand up for a second, please? These are the winners of the last, and they chose, and they're just the most amazing high school seniors. They're incredible. And they're, they actually, they did a, a, their video challenge, their teen gene video challenge was on the CRISPR gene, and it was magnificent. And part of their prize, which besides a monetary support, they also got to Skype with me for an hour. So we talked about photography and fashion and beauty and work and, and arts. And, and these gorgeous kids were so inspired that they continued to, wanted to continue to be part of positive exposure. And they just sent me a little piece that I'd like to share with you right now. It's only, it's really short, but this is them, this is 
is their introduction of their take on the positive exposure introduction. that we do, especially with Frame, taking this into the high school communities now as well, is to inspire our young artists, our young scientists, our young genetics, geneticists, or just, or just, but really, again, embedding it in our community, growing up as who we are, that we know that we all need to see, of course, beyond diagnosis, beyond disease, to that person standing there in front of us. All the photographs and all the exhibitions and all the frame pieces are all part of this one philosophy that really is about creating opportunities to not stare or look away, because we know after so many years working with that community that that looking away is so often more painful than the stares, but to create opportunities for healthcare providers and training, but communities that just steady that glance, steady that gaze long enough to see beauty in diversity, to see beauty in difference. And then once you see that, you're completely just overwhelmed and, and empowered with this new sense of what beautiful is. And then you see beyond that difference to what we all share, which of course is humanity. That's the basic, the, just the basic mission of positive exposure. I think we have just a few minutes. I'd like to maybe end but first, before I do that, I'd like to ask, some, are there any other questions or do, anybody comments on any comments on the, the Down syndrome in frame, which might be helpful or doesn't have to be a good comment. It could be a bad comment. Yes, sir. Right. Oh, it's starting to happen. <laughs> yeah. It's starting to happen slowly but surely. And it really is what's happening. There's this gorgeous girl. Her name is Winnie Harlow, and she has vitiligo, and she's doing campaigns now. There's a gorgeous girl with Down syndrome, Teresa, who's now walking the runway in London. And there's a beautiful video that's going viral right now, today. I just saw it all over the, uh, Facebook today of this fashion show of people in wheelchairs with prosthetics as well. But it really is about seeing this beauty and seeing beauty in difference. So it's, again, I don't think... I think Vogue magazine is quite ready to put somebody with a disability on the cover, but for sure they're going to start recognizing that there's beauty there and there's commerce there as well. Thank you, sir. Yes? I, I don't pitch the magazines. We, I've done lots. We've done several pieces. The first, of course, Life magazine. I've done stories and people and things like that, but I don't really pitch it because I don't. We're not trying to create to squeeze these kids 
and all of our great ambassadors into the beauty standard. We're trying and, and make it so, so that all look of that slime. We're trying to create a brand new one. And the brand, the brand new one that needs to exist is it, it has to be, it's not about pitching this, it's about someone coming to the realization that the beauty exists here. And it's beauty everywhere. Now, I'm, as a fashion photographer, people say, oh, everything's changed. You were shooting fashion models and superstars and now you're photographing genetic diseases. I'm like, well, I've never photographed a genetic disease in my life. It's always only people. And the most important thing is it's always beauty. So nothing's changed for me. It's still about capturing beauty, but it's about presenting that beauty in a way that we're all given the freedom to see and to embrace. So go, I don't want to kind of make all these great, amazing ambassadors squeeze into the parameters of that beauty standard, but create this new one. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Yay! <laughs> yes. Great, I, absolutely. In fact, we absolutely are. In fact, we, we've created the next series. In fact, if there's time. We, I probably won't have time to stay, but I could show the one in CF. It's all adults. But we're, we're, sh we're presenting. It's so important that we do it. We make sure it's inclusive of all ages, for sure. Yes? Yes. It'd be so great. So budget doesn't allow that just yet, but it's coming. I'm sure of it. We have to be very, we're really going to stick with the budget. So, but I'd love that idea. And I travel so much. I'm off to Ecuador tomorrow, so we'll we'll be, be photographing there. So it's going to be amazing. If you get to the airport on time. If I get, yeah, no, I know. So no, you really need to just, go. Just a uh, comment. I first experienced Rick's presentation when he was a keynoter at the American Academy of Pediatrics National Convention in Washington D.C some 15 or 20,000 pediatricians from Yay. all over the country and that was scary. other countries too. <laughs> you blew us away and you did again no. tonight. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.